This is the Powered Up Podcast, show 16. Groups, small groups, small groups, because they can be so differentiated. And to me, that's what they're designed to do is to fill those holes. And so again, instead of that, you know, one size fits all, that average approach, you know, like we talked about with the pilot seat, that's not necessarily going to plug everyone's individual gaps or holes. Whereas if we did some sort of pre-testing and again, had that data to say, well, look, you know, let's look at a gifted learner. Okay, so we're coming up on this geometry chapter and what I'm seeing is, you know, they have the mastery of the first three lessons I'm going to cover. Well, that's a great point to kind of put in what I mentioned earlier, to do some of that compacting and letting them move on. Welcome to a real-world education with insight and advice from teachers in the game, where current and former educators reveal what truly sets apart the great teachers and what it takes to make a positive impact on students. Whether you're in pre-service learning, new to the game, or a seasoned veteran, this is the show for you. You'll leave feeling inspired to take action because we are powering education by empowering you. of the Powered Up Podcast, and I am here with my co-host, Mr. Matt, the Mythbuster Rogers. Matt, what's what's going on, man? I feel like that's the best introduction name that I've had since the podcast began. Like I'll take myth. I'll take Mythbusters. Honestly, that was Ken, a solid show for a long time. I don't know if it's if it's still it is. Or not. It's on Discovery Plus. I check it. It's one of those when it's on, I find myself watching it way longer than I intend to. But getting to the point. Ken, I am okay. I wouldn't say good. I'm okay. I'm feeling it right now. I know uh, we'll talk to our, our guests in a moment about being into the thick of assessment season, and we are moments ahead of assessments. And to act like I'm not stressed or or ready for it to be over and hasn't started would be a lie. But here we are. Um, honestly, this was a podcast that I needed to happen. I, I am feeling way better than I did coming in and out of, uh, school today. Absolutely. I, I completely agree with that. And so, um, after we wrapped up tonight's interview with, with Stephanie Higgs, um, she offered, um, because we finished with the exit ticket, she talked about one of her, this was after the recording, she talked about one of her favorite exit ticket questions that she throws to our students. So that's what Matt and I are going to toss around right now. So um, this is from Stephanie. Matt, what were you thinking before this interview? And what are you now thinking afterwards? I, I hope I justified that the way she described it to us. All right, I'll, I'll clarify it for you. So one of her favorite things is to not only identify like main points and those type things, but how has your perspective changed? What was your your expectation coming into a topic? And then what have you learned through that conversation or lesson? And, and talking to this, I was mentioning to Ken when we weren't recording is this is a podcast that really represents a, a population of learners that we often forgive ourselves for giving the best instruction and it does take work but the gifted learner um, just like special ed when we find good teaching practices they're usually good for kids um, she brought up so many good points that 
I could do tomorrow. Um, even in a, a class, I teach all the subject areas and differentiation is really challenging. Um, but not having to feel like I need to create everything. There are plenty of resources out there. There's plenty of research that, um, again, can shift your mindset and say, yeah, I, I know it's work, but it's worth it. And, and when I have the opportunity to make a difference in a kid's life um, and, and instructional journey, it's worth it. And, and so that refocusing was one of those things that, yeah, Gifted is a really cool group of students. And there's uh, we, they often are the, the kids that I can do neat projects with was honestly a perspective uh, I shamefully had coming into the conversation. And the, the focus and intention behind them is something that I leave that conversation really feeling like, you know, uh, they deserve our very best, just like low uh, achieving learners and our, our middle of the road, which uh, some interesting facts about what average really means. And is there such a student you would call average? I don't know. So, Ken, what did you take away um, compared to what you expected going into tonight's conversation? So... I would uh, reiterate everything that you just said. Um, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about gifted students. Um, and so what I would say is I, I kind of feel like I, through experience in teaching, I aligned very simply with what, with what Stephanie was sharing. But the depth of knowledge, the research to support her, her opinion and, and what she does in her district and how she supports teacher was definitely a, a, a huge learning moment for me. Um, I would say mine was more anecdotal in just my experiences as a classroom teacher and as a gifted teacher. Um, but the, the amount of research and, and she makes it fun. Like, it's not like we're, we're running through stats here, but she just has a wealth of knowledge through her experience and her studies that offers clear insight as to why we should approach teaching and learning in certain ways. And like you said, Matt, her, she just serves up idea after idea of classroom strategies to use that will benefit your gifted and high achieving learners. But as you said, Matt, it's really just great teaching practices and it's great strategies to utilize in the classroom. So um, she, she offers just a wealth of knowledge from, from question number one. Um, we, we come out of the gates running here, but she, uh, she just brings it in this interview. And I, I would highly encourage you to, um, if you're not driving, have some pen and paper ready for this. Also visit our show notes page at poweredu.com slash show 16, because there's a lot of great takeaways that you, you can pull in here, not just mindset, not just motivation and empowerment, but really things you can bring back to the classroom. So, um, Without any further delay, let's uh, let's bring Stephanie here into the podcast. Stephanie, welcome to the Powered Up Podcast. We are very very excited to have you here. How are you? How are you doing tonight? Thank you so much for inviting me into this conversation. I'm great. Glad to be here. We started state testing today, so this is kind of a, a good refresh tonight and a recharge. And I'm glad to get to celebrate all the great things that have been happening this year and in previous years. Excellent. Excellent. So why don't we start things off with you officially introducing yourself, um, where you're from, wh where you're connecting uh, to us from, and just kind of what your, your teaching career has looked like thus far from a, from a simple snapshot. 
Okay, so I'm Stephanie Higgs. I have wanted to be a teacher since I was in the fourth grade. Um, I, As soon as I graduated from college, I went to school in Chattanooga, Tennessee. As soon as I graduated there, I stayed for an additional six years. I was a pre-K assistant, and then I worked my way into a second grade position after getting my master's in education. Then after six years in Chattanooga, I relocated to Nashville, Tennessee to be a little bit closer to home where my family lives. And so I taught fourth grade for three years. I finally got to achieve that lifelong dream. And then last year, I was invited to move into the role of a gifted educator and a differentiation coach. So now... I'm sort of getting the best of both worlds. I'm still getting to teach every single day students in grade levels K through five. Um, and those are my own students that I serve daily. But then I'm also getting to be a differentiation coach, which I feel really lucky that the county in which I work has a role like that for teachers. And so basically I get to serve all of the teachers in my building and ensure that they have what they need to support their high achieving or their gifted learners. So there's a lot of partnerships, a lot of opportunities opportunities for modeling and co-teaching, providing resources, things like that. Matt, I know you want to chime in. She talks about fourth grade. I know, I know. So I, Stephanie, I am a fourth grade teacher. You, I am right there with you. That's very similar to the reason why I got into teaching as well is to, to make my fourth grade teacher proud. Um, I think your journey is fascinating, and I think it's one that actually puts a spotlight on to a, in a group of individuals, learners that really, unfortunately, because they normally have such a successful experience in education, um, often don't always get what they need. They're the, the kids you can count on often. Um, and so I would imagine that's one of your bigger challenges. Can you kind of speak to um, why maybe, and I view it as, your position is as much an advocate as an instructor for the kids you see? Sure. Well, I know every educational program is different, but I will be honest, as a classroom teacher, I wasn't given a lot of background knowledge or teaching or instructional methods for those high achieving students. And so then when you become a classroom teacher, you have every type of need and diverse learner. And so it wasn't until I went back to graduate school and got my gifted endorsement that I really got to sort of soak in that research and in that good learning um, and really sort of see what those kids needs specifically. And Matt, you really hit on something that's really a prevalent belief in education, and that's that the gifted kids will be fine on their own. The gifted kids will, you know, they can be the ones who are who are peer tutoring other students, and, and really the research doesn't support that. And so that's really where I got to spend a lot of time in my graduate coursework, and then I sort of feel that that's now my job to pay that forward, because teachers don't receive direct instruction like that in undergraduate or graduate programs if they aren't necessarily specifically focused on focused on gifted education. So that's been really nice to sort of have that opportunity to deep dive there. Um, something I'm really passionate about as a coach, because I spent 10 years in the classroom, is the idea that it needs to be as simple as possible because teachers truly are given this Herculean task to meet so many diverse needs. And so I can understand why the students who are high achieving and high performing, they might be trusted to be a little bit more independent and to do a little bit more work on their own, um, perhaps even sort of some independent studies and things like that. So I really partner with the teachers and equip and 
empower them with the resources to make that time an investment in these students so they get some choice in the matter um, and so that they're really it's really the idea of buying back time for our most advanced learners a lot of research says that these students go into a specific grade level especially in the elementary grades and they know a startling percentage of the content that will be taught throughout the entire year and so when we can really buy back that time um, you know, something that we do is pre-testing. And I know as a classroom teacher, I thought, oh, that sounds great on paper. Of course, that sounds great in college courses. But how do we make that manageable when we have so many things happening in these classrooms? Um, and so I've taught teachers that can be as simple as I have a third grade teacher. She calls it her pick five group. And I taught her to pick the five most difficult problems. And if the students can solve those, they get to sort of fast forward and again, buy back some of that time to move on to more enriched or more different coursework. So that's really a passion of mine, especially because a lot of times those are the students that I serve with an IEP um, or an individualized education plan here in the state of Tennessee. And so that really helps us partner together to make sure that those students are being invested in um, and, you know, and being properly challenged. So that's a real joy of mine and a real passion of mine. Um, and, it, and it is, it's sort of a niche in education and it's a really specific skill set. But I work in a really high achieving district and a really high achieving school. And a huge percentage of our students, I think, would fall in line with students that are coming into the grade level, knowing a lot of that content and really being ready to extend those grade level content standards. Um, I'm going to keep talking. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> just keep going. Absolutely. But I've been doing a lot of research on the idea of teaching to the average. And so I sat in professional development several years ago, and we, um, I'll never forget this visual, it's stuck with me forever, but it was the idea that back in the 1950s, they realized when they were designing um, aircraft that the average pilot must have changed sizes a lot. So in the 1920s, that was when they had sort of designed the pilot seat. And so by the 1950s, they thought, well, gosh, you know, I guess just maybe our shapes and sizes have changed in the last 30 years, but we need to design this really great seat that will meet the average so that this is a proper fitting seat. Well, through all of this research, they did all these different types of measurements of, you know, wingspan and leg length and arm length and all these different things. And then what they found out was that I think like 3% of the population fits into the average. And so the moral of that story is that actually led to the invention of the adjustable chair. And so we all benefit from that today when we hop in our car and drive to work that we have a seat that's comfortable, that it's not designed for the average. But America is sort of obsessed with this idea of average. Um, and that's really a man-made creation. And so in the classroom, I think when we are, you know, those standards that are set for us, a lot of times those are set for the average. And if we look at something like this, you know, study from the 1950s, that's really only hitting such a small percentage of the students that we teach as a whole. And that really causes us as educators to have to differentiate for you know, potentially 90 plus percent of our class. So how can we do that in really easy and manageable ways? So that's really where, again, I feel so blessed to work in a district that does have a role like mine um, so that I can coach those teachers and provide those opportunities. What an opening statement. Holy smokes. Are we still in question one? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think what some of the things that are popping up and you brought up a ton of stuff, but again, first off, you've embodied every spirit of like the educator who wants to meet the needs of kids, not 
fall into the rut. And honestly, I think we're having this conversation in the middle of April when I really need it because I know from my sense, I am exhausted and I know that some of my learners are not benefiting from it right now. So first off, thank you for that. Um, your example using the, the driver's seat and how we kind of use, we've all seen in our education class that bell curve of where the average scores fall. And they say that that median really is in the center, but we would imagine that it's not necessarily associated to that. It's probably in that range of acceptable amount. I was thinking that it's very common that our, our learning support, and I was a former learning support teacher, so kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum, um, those learners get those special opportunities that happen on the daily to allow them to increase their foundational instruction to get caught up to the grade level expectations. And it is such a difficult job to be on the gifted side. I don't know about in your position, but in my district, we have one teacher that's doing a huge student body realistically um, and a huge amount of grade levels and, and trying to justify it through hands-on projects and differentiated learning opportunities but may not necessarily um, bring out gifted thought processes unless the the student was self-motivated to get there um, so i just some really tough positions that you're in when from the outside someone who sees a gifted educator is a we'll say slightly less challenging position, in reality, it's A, a huge ask, and B, the learners require so much because their thought process is honestly where you wish a lot of your learners are as well. Um, so just kind of talking about how um, some background to, to make you comfortable to have these conversations, what are some of the things that you do and, and opportunities? Because I would imagine conversations with gifted learners take you in many directions. How do you prepare yourself for many of these lessons that obviously you can't predict the end result? That's a great question. Um, and I think that's what's so powerful is that my students know that I am a lover of learning, but I am not the one-stop shop. I'm not the end-all be-all. And so I think it's really that ability for me to feel comfortable saying in front of my students, Miss X doesn't know that. That's a great question. In fact, I hadn't even thought of that question. So sometimes I can sort of pre-plan um, and I know sort of where their wonderings will go. But quite frankly, they they just, they always take it in new and exciting directions. And I think all of us as great educators are going to capitalize on those moments and, and really take those when they come. Um, and so that's really where I can kind of empower my students and offer that opportunity back to them and be honest when I don't know the answer, but also say, let's talk Talk about, you know, we have several standards and multiple grade levels about research. And so that's something that I was working on just last week was equipping my fourth graders with some of those technology standards about how to even evaluate if a resource is a valid resource or if it's a resource that we should trust a little bit less and what kind of criteria we look for. So I think kind of giving them the driver's seat there as well to take responsibility. Um, Several years ago, I did a, a book study, um, a faculty book study, and it was on the Curious Classroom. And so that was a book that, that the, the staff read, and we talked about what that could look like. And so at the time, I invoked something called What Are You Wondering Wednesday? And so, you know, I, I really was just sort of cultivating that curiosity and that idea that, you know, we really can't plan for all of these answers. And so one of my examples was, you know, I was staring at my laptop this morning, and I just couldn't understand as a teacher, why are the 
keys in such a mixed up order? Now that I'm a teacher who works with young kids, why wouldn't they put the keys on a laptop in alphabetical order? And so I brought that to my students. And then as we sat there together, I was able to say, you know, that's something I've actually already researched because it was a burning question. I couldn't wait until I got back to you guys. I had to know. I was so curious. And it turns out that it had to do with printmaking back in the day and that it actually would slow typers down because they would type so quickly that the keys would get jammed and they would get stuck. And so they actually changed that order to slow you down. Whereas now that technology is obviously such an integral part of our education, as a teacher, I notice how much it slows my students down and I wish it was in a, a way that was a little bit easier for them to understand. So really just sort of cultivating that, that classroom of curiosity um, and, and, and being honest when I don't know the answer and then also kind of teaching them those next steps so that they feel empowered to find that information on their own. Um, there are several gifted models for thinking and actually teaching students to think critically, to think creatively. And again, that's something that as a general educator, I was never trained in those. And so I can actually teach students all of these different methods of thinking now that I've had this background training. And so I try to equip our teachers with those skills as well so that they can sort of pre-plan how to teach our students to be really deep thinkers and really complex thinkers and then sort of how to problem solve from there. That's great. So I want to, because like Matt said, what an opening, I want to circle back to a couple things that you said. Um, in that, in that first question. And one of them is you were talking about, you know, you going back to school, learning about these gifted students, learning about, you know, things like you were just saying about critical thinking, creativity. Um, and I'm actually going to throw this question to, to both of you, but I'll start with you, Stephanie. What do you think are some general misconceptions or things that teachers will typically associate with gifted students that frankly is just not true about them. Um, you know, a simple one is they're, sm they're the smart kids. You know what I mean? What are some of those things that you've learned in your experience, your research, and just your, your graduate preparations that really open your eyes to understand gifted learners a little bit more that you don't think a lot of teachers understand? Ken, I think that's a great question because I honestly felt like I needed to do an episode of Mythbusters after I finished with that coursework because after 10 years in the classroom, I had believed so many of those before I had an opportunity to step into that research. And so, you know, I mentioned earlier, but just the idea that that gifted learners will be fine on their own, um, that that's certainly, you know, something that we want to address and, and really teach teachers um, and students how to take more ownership in the classroom and equip them with the resources to do so. Um, another a philosophy that can be prevalent in different places is sort of this idea of sharing the wealth. And because we typically think of those students as, you know, perhaps less likely to have behavior issues or to, to get us those test scores that, that are so weighted and that are so heavy and so important. And so that's really not best practice for gifted students. They really need to be clustered together. That's called cluster grouping. And so that's something that my school is, is really able to see the value in that and to understand the importance. But it's not sort of this idea of sharing the wealth or spreading it or, you know, you each take one. It's really that those students need to be together. There's so much power in those like-minded peers. 
the conversations that they can have, the work that they can do, the way you can differentiate. And that's really where I help teachers as well, that that's really helpful to teachers because instead of having one outlier, you have a pocket of students that you can really serve. Um, and it's that idea of work smarter, not harder. So instead of feeling like, you know, I'm going to the ends of the earth and that's just meeting the needs of one student, if they're cluster grouped, you can really, you know, get, get a, lot, a, a lot out of it that way. So that's certainly one. Another one that I was really shocked by is how many underrepresented populations there are. Um, the most recent data in Tennessee is actually several years old, but from the year 2018, I believe, the most recent data was that only 17 ESL students were identified as gifted learners across the entire state of Tennessee. Another really underrepresented population is girls. And so just kind of learning those things and really teaching my teachers in my building that we are just really on the hunt for these underrepresented groups. If you suspect, in Tennessee, it's actually considered a disability. Matt, you talked about the standard deviations above and below the norm, but in Tennessee, that's actually how students, part of the process is that we're aiming to identify the top two to 5% of students. And that's because they are back to your college coursework, but two standard deviations away from that standard expectation. And so that's really how students are served in Tennessee. Um, and so we want to be sure that we're, you know, that we're able to meet those needs and provide what they need. So again, cluster grouping, um, looking for underrepresented populations and making sure that um, another thing is sometimes behavior. So sometimes people expect that, you know, oh, that student misbehaves. I can't imagine they're gifted. I actually had that happen this year. And so a student that, you know, was was sort of going through this process and, um, you know, there was there were some conversations there. And this student, I said, I think the reason we're seeing those behaviors is boredom. And that was just a gut thing. You know, sometimes we just have that teacher gut and, and it just it's just instinctual. And this was a student that I just felt really, really quite sure that if we were to explore a little bit more that we would find that we'll come to find out one of his IQ pieces in the in the process was in the 140s. And so he was able to process really quickly and his visual spatial skills were really strong. And so I knew he needed to be stimulated. And if the classwork wasn't going to provide that mental stimulation, he was going to find that elsewhere. And so as soon as we were able to put that in place, we were able to provide those enrichments and extensions that he needs to be successful. So certainly not that, that gifted kids are your straight A, well-behaved students. They certainly don't fit any type of mold. Um, another prevalent piece in gifted education is underachievers. And so, you know, we also have students that we know are extremely bright, but because they're not performing, sometimes teachers or parents feel that it can be earned. And so, you know, well, he is a smart student, but he's, he's misbehaving in class. And so I don't really see, you know, any need for anything different or anything extra. Well, again, if they're an underperforming or underachieving student with those capabilities, then we want to ensure that, that their challenge is being, you know, identified identified and, and the, they're, they're able to be successful and then also enriched and engaged in the classroom as well. Excellent. So, so Matt, when you transitioned into regular ed and you started to have gifted students included in your classroom, what were things along the same line, what were things that perhaps you thought that you found to be incredibly untrue or things that you really were surprised by when you started to work with and, and enrich those gifted students in your classroom? So I think one of the things that comes to mind is as the general ed teacher, one of our responsibilities is to identify any learners with um, the potential need of other services. And again, the ones that need emotional support, need speech or language, 
are the ones that most frequently come to mind. Um, and I found myself suggesting learners for gifted because they were great students and had high grades and they frequently would not get identified, which is a whole other emotional side of things of kids are notified about this opportunity. They're taken out to do challenging testing and to not get there is a social and emotional thing that maybe me five years ago wish I knew the impact of that. Um, so I think that that idea really comes down to the critical thinking and the just level of um, kind of not necessarily genius or expertise in an area, but the amount of creativity in certain areas and really the thinking process that go beyond what you would expect for grade level expectations um, was one of those thresholds that I really struggled with with characteristics. I actually had kind of like what you were talking about, Stephanie, a uh, an emotional support learner that from my perspective, if some circumstances were different, I would imagine uh, maybe in a better household structure, that learner would have more clearly identified as a potential gifted student based off how he was in class. Unfortunately, he had a lot of features that I was trying to sell the special ed team, the school staff in, hey, if you sit and listen to this conversation, there are attributes and what can that produce uh, and, and where that could take the student, um, which is a, a hard advocation, right? It's a, it's a hard position to be in to say, hey, I think that the student that you may recognize is getting in trouble frequently, especially in those unstructured opportunities, actually is a prime candidate for gifted, which is something I think you kind of tapped into before. Um, so I guess that, that's kind of my, my thought. It was a huge adjustment to feel comfortable in really understanding. And honestly, what I ended up doing is I went to our gifted teacher during my specials and I sat in a room with gifted learners and kind of in that cluster grouping that you're mentioning, I was listening to the depth of conversation. Um, even I uh, had the opportunity to work with our gifted learners on a, a uh, they were creating uh, lodging or communities on the moon and uh, through recycled materials and we did it through 3D design for our virtual learners. Being in that room listening to a bunch of learners with higher level thinking or deep level thinking skills that were kind of embedded into them, you can pretty quickly pull those features and see it in other kids too. And there's also ways to be in that room and know how you can ask questions. I think this is the big thing ask questions of that general community to say, hey, they're having conversations that everyone would benefit from. I agree with that. Matt, you touched on one other thing I wanted to address that I did not learn until my last year in fourth grade. And that was, and Matt, maybe you're more comfortable with this or maybe you had experienced this a little bit more often than I had, but I hadn't heard about the idea of a student being twice exceptional until my last year in the classroom. And so, and that was because I was experiencing that. But I think, again, it goes back to some of those misconceptions is we sort of put gifted students in a box of what we expect and what we, you know, behaviorally and academically. And learning about students who are twice exceptional, me 
meaning that they have giftedness as well as a secondary disability, that was really eye-opening to me to just really to, again, break that mold and make sure that we're able to meet countless different services. Again, you mentioned that's the job of teachers is making sure if we need to provide those services that we are. So that was really eye-opening to me as a general education teacher. And then that's certainly something I've experienced on the gifted education side um, is that sometimes students have either, you know, twice exceptionalities or what we call asynchronous development. And that's that uneven development. So perhaps, you know, a first grader intellectually is working on a third or a fourth or fifth grade level, but then it's asynchronous development. So that's uneven. So their emotional capacity might be on or even slightly below grade level. And sometimes that can be tough for a teacher to sort of justify to understand how those fit together with that asynchronous profile. And honestly, Stephanie, I think you bring up a really good point. I imagine, and this is something that's kind of in the covers of Gifted Edge, is the amount of social and language conversations and social skills that you do in Gifted Ed. Kind of off that concept, a lot of times the learners that are gifted end up needing to learn how to communicate or they don't have the same social skills because they are sometimes so in their head and anal uh, analyzing so much that they don't communicate how they normally would. And I think that's a really uh, surprising, something I really struggled to understand is that our gifted teacher was not always talking and teaching about abstract concepts, but how can you go into the classroom? Because A, you don't want them isolating themselves. They need to learn how to still make friends, even if peers are not conversing at that same level. And also just how do you put up with a maybe pacing that doesn't match and create boredom for you? So can you kind of talk to, to the second half, I assume, of what you're coaching with um, other teachers of how do you support learners that when they want to be in that gifted classroom, if they could be in that gifted classroom all day long, a lot of times they would, but a huge portion of that is the skills for them to interact with their peers um, and treat others how they'd wanna be treated and, and understand that the pacing's not gonna match what they want. Can you kind of speak to that? So are you asking from the, the side of the teacher or yeah, the student. Uh, from the teacher, like when you're creating or considering social skills or social attributes that you know that you need to uh, kind of uh, address with the, the learners that you're meeting with. So we do a lot of social emotional development during that gifted time. I set a professional goal this year that each month I would pick a different attribute of giftedness to focus on. Um, and so something like perfectionism and just really talking to them and giving them language for some of the attributes that they may or may not possess, but also some of that social emotional coaching for those students so that they would be able to um, articulate what makes them special or what might make them a little bit different and have a deeper understanding. Sometimes they haven't had language to be able to explain that before of, well, gosh, I missed one on that math test and I almost burst into tears. I was so upset. And, and they don't necessarily have the ability to identify that, much less name that, much less make a plan to move forward. So that social emotional development is crucial. Something that's exciting that's coming out is Dr. Tamara Stamball. She creates um, a curriculum called Jacob's Ladder. And so that's just a questioning curriculum. And you literally work your way up a ladder from more simple to more complex. And initially those were created in response to text. However, she's actually gone back just in the last couple of years 
And some of those, I believe, are even currently in the, in the process of being published, and they're actually social emotional ladders and so it really offers these students the opportunities to have those discussions and continue that development so that's certainly an important piece as well um, because Tennessee is one of very few states that identifies gifted learners as special education students they have what's called an IEP and that's an individualized education plan and so actually underneath that plan not only do I have the opportunity to serve them in enriched academics I also have the opportunity if they need specific services in either pre-vocational skills, organization, time management, task completion, or social emotional skills. And so that's actually something that we can put in a legally binding document if students need the support of special education services in order to be successful in the classroom. So that's an added bonus when you are an IEP state for gifted education, that that's actually a legally protected document to ensure that students have those opportunities for growth. Yeah, and that's, that's very different, um, at least in Pennsylvania. I did work uh, one year as a, as a gifted teacher, learning a lot of the processes, learning that uh, uh, process of writing a GIEP. And a conversation I typically had to have with parents was, you know, they would ask, like, can you work on organization or can you work on some of this stuff? And I would say, yes, I will but it's never going to be in this document because this is a strength-based document put into place to provide opportunity for your son or your daughter to have pull-out time to you know, practice those strengths and work on those critical thinking skills and how that's gonna happen in the regular classroom. Um, so that's interesting that, that you have that and there's, there is a huge advantage to that. Um, and that's, that was something that I saw a lot too with, with other teachers I was working with in my own uh, misconceptions in the beginning is like that idea that they should be organized or they should be good writers or they should be good at everything. Like that's not the case. Um, and so it, in the beginning of the interview, you talked about pretesting and your use of that in the classroom and how it can impact how you're instructing all students, but specifically the gifted as well about how they typically will know a lot, a scary amount of a, the content that you're about to teach as a as a fifth grade math teacher, where a lot of the concepts are just a little bit higher than fourth grade, but it's almost all the same concepts. I saw that constantly with students, whether they were gifted or not, knowing a large majority of the skills that I was about to teach. So two questions for you on that on that pretesting piece. What are strategies that you recommend? for teachers that you use yourself, whether it be tools or ways you're doing simple, efficient pretesting, And then how do you recommend they, they differentiate in a model where they're recognizing the, stu the students that already have these skills and still providing them opportunities to learn and grow? So let me share with you my favorite differentiation strategy first. I will admit this was something a principal shared with me after an observation when I was teaching in Chattanooga and I was presenting, you know, just one math problem at a time and you've got, you know, some that could almost complete that problem mentally and then others who even with several minutes would really require the use of manipulative. So how do you manage that as a classroom teacher? And you've got 20 littles sitting on the rug and they've got their whiteboard and they're working so hard, but some are already finished. Some are kind of, again, right at that, what we would think of as that average pace and then some that need more support and so she gave me the best idea and it's called we call it stoplight problems and so basically it's the idea that instead of presenting one problem at a time you would present three problems at a time and so you would present color-coded green is, is sort of that grade level standard that grade level expectation 
Then you would pose a yellow problem directly underneath or beside, just a little bit more challenging. Perhaps, like you were talking about, Ken, I know that happens so often in a math class. So perhaps maybe the yellow is just moving to the next place value, thousands to ten thousands, ten thousands to hundred thousands. And then the red problem um, is really something that's going to stump students a little bit. So I recently did this. I modeled that in a second grade classroom, and they were working on telling time. Um, if you haven't learned by now, I'm a little bit extra and above and beyond in everything that I do. So I didn't present three, I presented five problems, which is far too many. You can simply three is manageable, but I just wanted to sort of show them. And the fifth problem was what I called a super stumper. So these were second grade students. Standards were to tell time to the hour, the half hour. Well, then I moved to the five minute. And then my red problem was time to the minute. And then my super stumper was above and beyond that. And they had just been thinking about um, money. And so I talked about, okay, so the idea of, of a quarter is one fourth. So talking about fractions, talking about money. So in time, what would a quarter of an hour be? And so that was something that really was, again, going to develop that stronger and deeper critical thinking, not something we were necessarily going to cover. But I had one or two students in each class, and that's a great way to identify gifted learners. When you do things like that and you just pose that problem, but that is such quick, instantaneous feedback. So I will admit, I was just thinking in terms of math. Well, a second grade teacher at the school where I'm coaching loved that idea. She ran with that and then she was formally observed doing that. So then during that that conference that followed, our assistant principal said, you know, you can really do those stoplight problems in any subject. I had never thought about that. I had really sort of limited that to math. So then the teacher came and told me she was so excited. She got this great feedback. Well, when she told me that this assistant principal mentioned doing that in any subject, I then went to a fifth grade uh, English language arts teacher and I proposed the idea to her. So she and I worked together to do the same thing in literacy. And so we really talked about starting with that green question. She was working on text structure. So green was just simply, you know, read this passage. What's the text structure? And then those yellow and red questions dug a lot deeper. They sort of got into author's purpose and, and motivation and, and point of view and perspective, positive and negative implications. So you can really do something that simple in every subject. It does require a little bit of that forethought and pre-planning, but what that fifth grade ELA teacher came back to me and said was, that is such instantaneous feedback. And she said, you know, I make the mistake as a teacher of if students are compliant, I think they've all got it. I've been up here tap dancing and teaching my heart out and nobody was, you know, causing an issue. And so I just assumed I taught it really hard. They've all got it. We're going to move on. And when she did that quick, just right there in the moment feedback, she was able to say, oh gosh, there were five students that misidentified the text structure, that's a small group. So she could scoop them and do something else and then move those other students along. So that's my favorite, favorite way. It's so easy to implement, but stoplight problems can be used in any subject. Something else that, that I saw modeled at a professional development conference last year in math was conceptually, how do you keep these students managed when you're trying to teach that whole group math level, you know, on that grade level standard, but you do have these high achievers. And so the way it was presented to me, finally, it clicked and I felt like this was manageable, but it was the idea that you present students with perhaps five to 10 minutes at the beginning of the lesson with their class. So again, throw in those stoplight problems so it's still differentiated and that way they're still developing that classroom community, still feeling part of things, but then they can do a simple pre-test out. And so at that point, you might do something like the most difficult five, where you've pre-selected the five most challenging problems. If they can do those, there's no sense in them continuing through that rote drill and practice. So at that point, they do the five most difficult 
and then they actually rotate out. And so they are working on something different while the teacher is still working with the class. And so something that's been taking off at the school where I teach is the idea of choice boards or menus. And so we have gone through and pre-planned and pre-selected a variety of different tools, my favorite of which are called Marcy Cook Math Puzzles. That was something I learned at this gifted conference last year. They are life-changing. And so that's a set of puzzles where the numbers zero through nine are presented to a student and they have to solve all of the equations and they use each number only one time. And they make these Marcy Cook math puzzles for every standard imaginable in math, all the way from kindergarten through fifth grade. So that's something that I brought to my school this year and they've caught on like wildfire. So that's a perfect supplement to put in when students have pre-tested out. Um, even as someone who participated in those, you hit sort of a limit and you think, well, gosh, I've answered them all and I still have a three and a seven. So then you have to go back and rework because you might have a correct answer, but the tiles that you have left won't fit. So you have to go back and do some thinking. So things like that are easy, easy ways um, to pre-plan some really exciting and engaging enrichments that are more appropriate for students than sitting through, you know, it's that idea of buying back that time for those advanced learners. You're in my wheelhouse, Stephanie. That is differentiation in math was, was my passion, uh, presented many times on the topic. Um, I, I want to dive into some very nitty gritty details, but I think maybe you and I can talk after the show about how I utilize flipped, flipped instruction embedded in that. Um, my last year in the classroom, I, ha I really had students working at their own pace through through each unit based on those pretests. I think a pretest is it's one more thing, and that's easier said than done in education, sure. um, especially for classroom teachers. But it provides you so much information about about the students, um, and it's it's so necessary. I would say in any subject, but really math and reading specifically, because kids are coming in with a certain level of skills and they're building upon those. Whereas science and social studies, you're whether or not you're a strong science student or you have a strong understanding of history, in theory they're learning about new concepts. So everybody's kind of coming in more on a on a level playing field. But when you when you do those pretests unit by unit, you find out so much more information because a strong math student will typically show up as strong, but there are some concepts that they don't understand. Whether they didn't understand it the first time they learned it, they went on vacation that week in third grade and they just missed a lot of it. I mean, there could be a hundred reasons why they're not strong in that one unit and vice versa. You have those middle students that float up, they float down, they stay in the middle. So using those pretests to really identify and, and and figure out where your students are. And then I loved how you talked about allowing them to test out. Um, Matt, jump in. What, do you, what did you want so to add? I guess, so I am in the classroom right now. And one of the things that I'm struggling with is we are in a curriculum that's relatively scripted for us. So the idea of taking liberty and saying, hey, I'm going to jump this line and create opportunities, I can understand hey, I need to go and support and help them narrow down options for my lower learners. Um, but it feels uncomfortable to accelerate on the top end for some of those other learners. I'm sure you come across that challenge frequently with when you're coaching other teachers of, I don't have creative freedom to say, here's the next logical step. I know that I could say, here's a real world application, make a physical model, do different hands-on uh, kind of depth of knowledge, but how do you handle the idea of 
a teacher that says at the end of the day, I, I taught lesson 17 yesterday, so I'm going to teach lesson 18 tomorrow. How do you handle that conversation? Because again, you know that neither side is wrong, right? The, the teacher feels like they're responsible to do that. Um, but we also do have to give ourselves permission to have educational liberty to use the curriculum as a tool, not the, uh, the handbook to teaching. Sure. Well, and I think one simple thing, I'll give you an example from kindergarten. It was, you know, second semester and they're spending a week on the number 18. That was something that could have been compacted. And so when we talk about the idea of curriculum compacting, it's okay, let's sort of accordion style when we use some sort of quick and even an informal pretest, we can really kind of hammer that down to a smaller period of time. And that's going to buy back time for those more advanced skills that as a veteran teacher, you think, oh goodness, we only get two days on this skill and it's really challenging and they're going to need more time. And we're going to kind of keep plugging away at this very specific speed that's been set before us. And so, I think that's really a way to, to have that conversation with teachers is to let the data speak for itself because we're up there working too hard for students that already know the content. So if we're up there again every day for a week looking at the number 18 and perhaps, you know, a pretest suggests that 17 of our kids already knew all of the foundational skills that were part of that, then let's consider compacting there so that when we move to something more difficult a few weeks later, like beginning addition and subtraction skills that we have a little bit more time. So it's really the idea that we're still following those pacing guides that were set for us. We're still following that curriculum or scope and sequence, whatever we've been given by our district or by our state. But it's that idea that I don't think anyone would support that if the data doesn't show a need for that, that we insist on teaching it. I think if the data suggests that only three students are lacking there, so that that's a small group. And so I can really, you know, either extend what's already been given to me or compact so that later on we've bought back some extra time for more difficult standards and the data really supports that. So that's where I think that gives you, so to speak, a leg to stand on if you have that pre-testing data so it doesn't feel so autonomous or, you know, I just had freedom and I thought this was more fun. So we'll spend a week on this in two days here. Um, but that really gives you sort of that data to, to support why you would either accelerate or compact the curriculum. Um, and so some, that's probably where I would start. I think that's a, a really great point because I think I'm coming up to module five out of eight and it is April. Um, so the idea of creating time and and not that it's wasted time reviewing skills, but it is something that's beneficial. You will figure out a way to highly use that skill um, if you're using that information. I want to talk about one other thing, um, and I'm challenging you, Stephanie. I know it's late at night, but um, one of the things that's been going through my brain is just, a, again, a general educator is the new introduction of technology within the last five to 10 years has totally for me changed my classroom experience. And uh, what I mean by that is five, 10 years ago when we started having technology in the classroom, yes, we could do really cool projects and slideshows that turned into movies that turned into Skyping authentic uh, experts in the field, all sorts of great things. But one of the newer aspects that I am really grappling with, so I hope you have a great answer for this, is how to teach when we have resources like IXL, Freckle, um, we had a program called Alex, um, we're using a curriculum called Eureka that has a um, kind of 
associated program, but there are some independent instructional sources that are at the student's pacing level. They have to complete it and they are driven to go through this on their own. I have found, and hopefully I'm not alone, that students are coming to me with either A, prior knowledge, accelerating the instruction, or B, really bad habits. So those two things, I don't necessarily find in ELA or math that I'm teaching a lot of concepts for the first time. For instance, we covered angles through an alternative program. They could identify acute, right, obtuse, either by lucking into it or just choosing wisely and seeing that pattern that I've found that my curriculum has really been changed because they have well-structured experience with it before. The question that I'm getting to is one of the things that you're talking about with pretesting is I find a lot of students are having general knowledge and specifically gifted learners have 80% of the knowledge. How do you balance that intake and really targeting those holes that they don't understand? How do you find those specific holes in that instruction? Because I know even in a year like this past year where we had missed instruction, our admin tried to say, okay, try to plug as many holes from third grade as a fourth grade teacher, when I also have to teach new fourth grade. So that is a super complex, I don't know if you have any clue of what I'm actually asking, but do you have any thoughts of, there are so many materials, so many sources of information like Khan Academy, um, how do you manage all that to really know what students need to know? Um, that's, yeah, that's a great question. And I'm not sure that I have, you know, like I tell my students, I'm not sure if I have the best answer, but the first thing that comes to mind when you're saying that is small groups, small groups, small groups, small groups, because they can be so differentiated. And to me, that's what they're designed to do is to fill those holes. And so again, instead of that, you know, one size fits all that average approach, you know, like we talked about with the pilot seat, that's not necessarily going to plug everyone's individual gaps or holes. Whereas if we did some sort of pre-testing and again, had that data to say, well, look, you know, let's look at a gifted learner. Okay, so we're coming up on this geometry chapter and what I'm seeing is, you know, they have the mastery of the first three lessons I'm going to cover. Well, that's a great point to kind of put in what I mentioned earlier to do some of that compacting and letting them move on. But hold on, when we get down here, I noticed that there's four questions in a row and they missed those. Well, that tells me they're going to be just back in part of the class. And so really that flexibility that that's always changing, that groups have kind of that permeability, students are in and out. Um, there's not necessarily a high group, low group, and you make those in August and you're teaching those kids in May, that there's really a lot of flexibility for those groups to change consistently. And then perhaps to manage some of those, I know that can be overwhelming when you feel like you have great resources, but so many, but the idea of a workshop model, whether it's in math or in reading, so that you can pull a small group and then other students are participating in some of those activities that are a little bit more self-corrective. Um, and so like the Marcy Cook math puzzles I mentioned, those are almost self-correcting because when you're left with a seven, the kids will say, well, I've got a seven and that doesn't fit here. Well, you know what that means. That means we're back to the drawing board. Another great one is hand to mind, the word hand, the number two mind. They make something called versatiles and it's so cool. So you, you solve all the math problems 
with these little manipulative tiles and they make a shape and you check the shape at the end and if there's a piece in the shape that's missing or that doesn't make the correct shape you know that you've missed one so you go back and you fix that so I think that is sort of I would hope going to address some of the manageability of I want them on these individualized programs I also want to make sure they're not developing bad habits and as a second grade teacher Matt I could really empathize we used to have a big workshop model with like eight different rotations and I learned quickly that students were practicing bad habits incorrectly 20 times so if I had a worksheet on a grammar skill and they you know missed it on the first one they sat there and practiced that incorrectly and that's how it was ingrained and internalized another thing that steered me away from that was attending my first workout class that was in circuit training and you know the first 10 minutes they're up there and they say you come to this station you do this you go here you do this and I finally understood how my students felt when I tried to to, you know introduce eight different rotations on Monday and they would get to the second one and have no idea well once I attended that workout class I stopped feeling frustrated I could empathize and so a really predictable consistent model of a workshop is something that's always worked really well for me and so that means that you know typically I've done like a Monday Tuesday model and a Wednesday Thursday model and so by the end of a two-day cycle they've come to my table once they've gone to a technology rotation I selected perhaps a hands-on piece um, and then, you know, some sort of independent practice. So I feel like some sort of model like that really lets you address those small groups and see every student in a differentiated setting to fill some of those gaps and then also being really strategic and also really consistent. That does alleviate the planning for you. If it's not, you know, eight rotations you're introducing every Monday, if it's consistently that students practice IXL and rotation two, students come to me for rotation three, you know, those things can become really consistent um, for students and you can really maximize the time that way. I think you did a great job of summing that up. Well done. Thank you. So one of the things uh, I was, uh, I know we talked in a previous episode, uh, we had Wade on in our third episode is this concept of MCL. And I just want to bring it up. Stephanie, are you familiar with MCL at all, Mass Customized Learning? No, teach me something new. All right, so Mass Customized Learning, I'll try to boil it down real quick, but it's the partnering of grade levels that really essentially blurs grade level and creates pockets uh, or ranges of instruction. And there's ways to do it in kind of introductory levels, and then you can go to a building that doesn't have any grade levels, which is wild. Um, but it's huge on pre-assessment and post-assessment. Post-assessment usually being a... Um, traditional formal tests with also prove it's along the way, proving that they actually understood the concepts. But realistically, the students would take these assessments and get leveled out to where they belong based off their current academic level, not to their age or the grade that they're told to go to. And it was really something our school district was leaning into. And that was one of the difficult times going into coronavirus and pandemic was we had to go back to our fourth grade. So I had third graders in my fourth grade high math class. And I also sent some of my fourth graders up to the fifth and sixth grade class. So I could maybe focus on fourth grade materials and be an expert on that area. But it didn't mean that my students had to be nine or 10 years old or that my kids would be managed in that level. And I think some of the things we talked about before, which was really nice, is it really eliminated um, 
boredom and frustration, it really drove up intrinsic motivation. If I knew I worked hard, I could move to a harder group and really accelerate. Um, there's some incredible things that are going on with it. Obviously, it's a little bit different right now. Um, but just another thing to kind of uh, consider, it's one of those things that are growing and it's all under the concept of let's use the instructional time for kids at their best rate possible. Um, now, obviously, there are anchors that we have all fourth graders for when we were able to do it in, in the way we tried to in, um, um, with integrity. But for the most part, the classes were switching. I'd have third through fifth graders in my math class, a totally different group for my ELA writing class, totally different group for my ELA reading class. It was a really phenomenal way that I felt like we were actually addressing some of the points you've made throughout the instructional time that um, we have to figure out a system that is based off students understanding and leans into mastery based learning as opposed to standards based learning. And I know that's a huge push. We're still looking for a solution to it, but I just want to point that out. I know we talk about it more in our, our third episode as well with Wade. Well, I'll just add one thought on that. So that actually, I, I haven't heard it called that, but I have been researching that idea. And I thought it was so progressive. And as I started to research, it was pointed out that that really is how our traditional school system began, was with the idea of a one-room schoolhouse. And so as progressive as it felt to me, it really wasn't. Um, and it's the idea that we really maybe shouldn't be thinking about it of, oh, all of you are nine, so let's group you up and put you in this classroom. That really being nine is a small part of that development. And especially academically. And so I love the idea of addressing that. Perhaps they work on that social emotional you know, development with age appropriate peers through recess and lunch and special classes, but, and even science and social studies, like you mentioned, a lot of times that is new information. But when we hit those core reading and math blocks, that that's really something to consider. So that's something I'm really passionate about too. I think that'll be interesting to watch in the, in the coming years in education um, because it has traditionally been done a certain way for so long, but I think there's a lot of research that supports that there could be a lot of benefits there too. Well, and it really circles around the entire theme of, of what you've been sharing tonight, Stephanie, and that's, you know, we need to provide an educational experience for what students need. And that is so individualized and that is a huge challenge, especially, and that, that challenge falls on the classroom teacher. That responsibility falls on the classroom teacher. Um, when teachers are in positions like you are that, that support it, it makes all of those pieces easier. Mass customized learning is a system so, to support those those teachers in, in those capacities. But really trying to understand students' abilities is so important. And, you know, if you're listening to this and, and you're hearing about pre-assessments or, you know, to answer Matt's previous question about, you know, you know it a student has 80% of this, but how do you check in for holes? That constant check-in of, of quick assessments. For teachers listening, you have to find digital forms that will keep you efficient. You should spend almost no time grading these assessments, but just quick analyzation. Where are they? Where do they need to be? Because that's where your craft and that's where the, that's where the instruction happens is looking at are they still there or are they meeting my expectations? Um, and so when I was pre-assessing students, if they passed, you know, I know the content. One of the first things they did was a more rigorous form of that while I was teaching that initial, initial lesson to students to make sure, yeah, they actually do have a good foundational understanding of, 
of these concepts. So I think the three of us could talk about this all night, but I want to try to be a little bit mindful of our, of our time here. And I want to, I want to switch into our, our lesson lens where we can find out a little bit more. You've shared a lot of specific lessons and strategies. So I'm excited for you to share some more here. So it's six questions between Matt and I. And the first question is, is this a unit overview, a single lesson or a long-term project that you're going to share with us? Okay, so what if none of the above? I <laughs> the love gifted it. teacher. Um, so it's really more the idea of arts integration and how that has looked for me in second grade in Chattanooga and gifted education now and also as a fourth grade teacher. All right. Um, so that's okay. Yeah, totally fine. Absolutely. Um, so the first question, ironic that I asked this after the last point I just made. Um, would you classify grade level? which feels uncomfortable to say, uh, maybe specific subject area uh, in addition to art integration um, or time of year. Is there any of those attributes that are considered when presenting these activities to your learners? The activities that I'm thinking of are always based around science and social studies grade level standards, which, hey, Matt, we gave ourselves a free pass there. We said most of that is new content. That's right. <laughs> Excellent. So specifically, what are the objectives of these uh, art integration lessons? Okay, so when I think about that, I think I want students to have a deeper understanding of the, the content that we're studying in science or in social studies. But on top of that, I want them to be more globally minded citizens. Um, I want them to think through critical models of thinking or creative models of thinking. Um, and I really think that when we're really trying to address the whole child, that we can embed not just mastery of science and social studies standards, but also sort of supporting the idea that students learn differently. Um, and we think about Hard Howard Gardner's theory of multiple intelligences, that this really addresses different types of learners while still mastering grade level standards, but also supporting students who learn through arts integration. Beautiful. So if I am sitting as a student in your class, what could I expect to be doing during this lesson? What is the role of the student specifically? So all, I know we're getting shorter on time. I'm a talker, but I'll talk specifically about what I'm doing now in gifted coursework and, and lessons that I've written that are actually written for general education teachers to support all students, but that these lessons would be great for gifted learners. And that's the idea that using making, thinking, visible routines can help us integrate art into our content studies. So I'll give you a few examples. One way that I was thinking about community outreach, um, specifically for art museums across the state of Tennessee. So what I did was I started looking at our grade level standards. I started looking at pieces that each of the art museums specifically in Tennessee had to offer. And then also some of these making thinking visible routines. And then I sort of had fun weaving the three together. So like one example from third grade, is a piece that hangs in the Knoxville Museum of Art, and it is a piece on the history of Tennessee. And so for that, I might do something like a color symbol image making thinking visible routine. And basically students would be required after studying through that piece to identify a color that represents the state of Tennessee and why, a symbol and an image. Uh, one of my favorites is a third grade lesson that I wrote called A Trip to the Museum. Students in the third grade in Tennessee are expected to be able to identify 
identify and locate a handful of, of countries around the world. Um, and so I pulled from each of those Tennessee museums art pieces from around the world. Um, and so one, one activity that I did with this, now this one was sort of made up, this is not a making thinking visible routine, but students were given cards and they had to identify which card they would put with each piece of art. So one of the cards had a heart on it. And so it was, it was talking about, you know, which of these pieces really pulls at your heartstrings and makes you feel something? Which one of these do you think is worth the most money? Which of these would you hang in your home? Which of these would you give as a gift to someone? Um, so things like that. Which one do you have an unanswered question? about which one would you like to step inside so that idea of multiple perspectives um, another one that I've done in fourth grade that I wrote was at the Hunter Museum of American Art and that's located in Chattanooga Tennessee and it was a portrait of George Washington and so that one was a making thinking visible routine where students were asked to step inside and then to talk about what they perceived the person to be, what they knew about the person, and what that person would have cared about. So if it was a picture of George Washington, what did he perceive at this time to be true? What did he know and what did he care about? Um, and one of my favorite ones is a simple to complexity scale. This would be great for gifted learners. But I was looking at a Native American piece and we came up kind of with three big ideas. And so that was that this piece, and it was pretty abstract, but it represented legacy, it represented relationships, and it represented power. And so students simply on a post-it note just wrote one of those three words and then why. So why did this piece represent legacy for Native Americans? Why did it represent power? And so then they, whichever one they chose, they went to that, I had made anchor charts ahead of time, legacy, relationships, power, and students would go to that anchor chart and they would then actually have to level their thinking from the most simple to the most complex. So we call that a complexity scale. So in very simplest terms, why would this represent legacy? But then also students who got really deep and really critical thinking within that. And so they would actually have to sit and have those conversations to sort of put those in order. Um, and then one of my last favorites that is definitely in the gifted world, but Dr. Tamara Stambaugh, I mentioned her earlier with the Jacobs, Think Jacobs Ladders of Thinking. Um, she and Dr. Emily Mofield created something called a visual analysis wheel. And that's one of my favorite pieces that I've done. So it's truly a wheel and you work from the outside circles in and you, at first you're just identifying different pieces in an art um, work. So I chose a piece from the Civil War. That's something that's studied in fifth grade. And so students, start by just making observations about what are the implications of a piece like this? What techniques did the artist use? Um, what were the feelings that this evokes? And then the really, you kind of work your way in, the last piece in the center is on, so what's really the main idea of this piece? And then not only that, but the gifted thinking occurs when students start drawing lines within the wheel. So they might talk about how the feelings in the, the portrait or the picture are represented um, or brought out by the techniques that the, the artists use. So perhaps by the coloring or by the type of medium that they created the piece of art with. So those are just a few examples, but I love using the science and social studies curriculum um, with local art from around the state because our students, it's so transient. Students travel to these major cities all the time and how powerful would that be if the next time they're headed to Knoxville, they say, hey, we studied this piece of art in class. I would love to go to the museum while we're there and look at that. So um, that's something that I'm really passionate about and that students sort of get to express a different side and sort of a different type of smart um, than just your typical, I'm great at reading, I'm great at math, but we have all these kids who are what we call art smart um, and so that really gives other students a chance to shine that's fantastic so 
in those different examples, they sounded like a very similar classroom structure, but taking very different approaches. What is the role of the teacher during those different activities to ensure students are reaching success? Definitely facilitator more than anything else, because a lot of times in art, there's not a right or wrong answer. And so a lot of the ways that these have been structured, if students have some background knowledge, then teachers can really support just more of that role of facilitation and just simply ask students to defend what they're, you know, if they can defend why red would be the color they would choose or blue or, you know, as long as they have, you know, a defense that can be backed up by standards, by things that they've been taught, um, and then by the piece of art itself, then they're, you know, it's a little bit easier to, um, to manage that and to ensure that they have um, the mastery of the content standards that you want. So the last thing is, if you were to put your, the, the thought bubble above your head, your dream of how this would turn out, um, what adjustments or what are you striving to continue um, in your role? I know I'm sure it's changed every time that you've introduced it and, and used it, but what would be that ideal pie in the sky? This turns into what? Um, where would you like to see it go in the future? I think one that that it would be something that teachers prioritize because I think time is just what we can never get enough of. And so I think sometimes that arts integration piece is sort of something that takes a back seat when we have standardized tests and subjects and we have these different things that become priorities. So I think one, just making time for it and really realizing and appreciating the types of learners and the types of students that this way of thinking develops. Um, and then really just creating students who are a little bit more globally minded, who are are um, able to appreciate things maybe in a different way or adopt a different perspective as a result of one of these activities. Um, so definitely, you know, as far as student impact and student growth, but also helping them find some strengths that perhaps are a little bit unexplored. You know, if this is something that they really take to, um, you know, that there are so many careers there and, and ways to appreciate that throughout the rest of their life. Before we jump into our exit ticket, uh, Ken had made a note about a museum magnet school in Chattanooga, Chattanooga um, that you worked at. Um, I assume that that either was inspiration or something that came out of the project. Is there anything to add towards that or clarify what that means? Well, that's what I skipped. I was trying to let you guys go to it's bed, okay. but it's okay. we're still chatting. So that is the unique perspective that I bring, I think, because I had that experience for six years. And so, again, that takes a very specific type of school to have the specific supports that you need. But we actually had community partnerships with all of the local museums in Chattanooga. And not just that, but most of them were a five to 10 minute bus ride from the front doors of our school. And so we called them learning expeditions. These were not field trips. This wasn't you pull up to the aquarium and kids go in groups and they spend all day. Rather, instead, it was that we would be studying crustaceans. And so students would march in, we would sit in front of the crustacean exhibit, we would do a very specific activity, and we would go back to school. Um, so not only was it a museum magnet school because we partnered with the local museums, but we actually turned the school into a school-wide museum at the end of every quarter. And so th throughout the quarter, students were actually creating artwork that represented their learning and their very deep understanding of the topic that were taught in specific relation to those science and social studies modules. 
And so students would go visit the museum, we would study the piece at length, they would come back, they would create some sort of artwork that represented that, and then by the end of the quarter that would hang in a thematic unit. So something like in second grade we did a dinosaur unit, we did a unit on Japan, we did Native American studies, we did oceans, um, we did government, and so that would sort of be the theme overarching for science or social studies content. We would study that for a quarter, we would have those museum partnerships, and then we would also turn the school into a museum of student created work. Even better, students um, made their own textbooks. We were a textbook free school and so students created their own science and social studies textbook each quarter. Those were called travel journals and so that was really a time for students to one develop that strong writing and that scientific writing um, and so they would create those kind of as we went. So based on the different topics that we were studying, students would then reflect and respond in a travel journal. How cool. I think that that's a beautiful thing, obviously, for you to see the kids' results and really that deep understanding is really powerful. I think one of the things that you bring up by by working there in addition to being a teacher, I believe, is, again, it's obviously a passion, whether it was strictly because of being a use for your classroom or just a natural passion of yours. And I think that's one thing that for newer teachers or other teachers, we can bring our own passions into the classroom. I remember Ken and I were working at learning 3D printing and it became almost an obsession for ours and it quickly made its way into the classroom of, hey, it's cool to make trinkets, but how can we actually use it instructionally? And I think those academic challenges and Ken and I spent hours talking about activities and Ken did many cooler projects than I did with his fifth graders on that. But I think that's one of the best parts uh, kind of overviewing this entire interview of where you can create time, pre-testing, not going over things, you can create opportunities that bring in A, your own interest, because kids much rather hear your experience. My wife and I go to the national parks every year because we teach a huge unit in ELA and science on U.S. geography and the national parks. It's way cooler for me to say, hey, we're talking about Lentic and Lotic waters. Here's a video of me in front of this moving body of water. It makes a world of a difference where it, maybe we can't take the whole class to a museum. It's a huge connection point. Um, and it's also you being really into it makes the kids really into it. So just a huge encouragement for that. That's a really cool opportunity that you've created for your learners. I, I think Thank that's you. a really good point, Matt, because so often it, and although I agree with this too, we try to learn the passions of our students and bring that into our content. And we should do that. We should get to know our students. We, we should make those efforts, but that's even more of a challenge because you have a, a huge array of interests in your classroom. And so that is a little bit more craftful in the way you can approach that. But what you're saying, Matt, about bringing your passions into the classroom, it really does ignite that excitement for the students as long as you've taken the time to establish a positive rapport and classroom community where you care about the students and they care about you. And, and that's where that alignment of their passions and your passions really creates excitement in the learning opportunities. So I want to jump into our, our last segment of the show called the exit ticket, um, the opposite of a pretest. So uh, question number one is what is the best thing that a teacher can do to make a student's school experience better? 
It has to be relationships. And I will be honest, I have learned, I have worked in three different schools and I have learned something different in each one. And school number one was bell to bell, rigorous, enriching, engaging instruction. But I didn't have time to do that and also get to deeply know my students. And it was almost like, I'm teaching you this much because I love and care about you so much. School number two focused on relationships. And I'll never forget, I attended a training and they told us that there was some research that said that you should know 10 things about a student before you try to teach them anything. And that has changed me as a teacher. And so actually that's one of the things I do the first week of school is 10 things I need to know about you. And so one sen uh, one sentence stem that I give them, and we play this game sometimes in partnerships, is if you really knew me, you would know. And so for one minute straight, as fast as you can back and forth. So like I would get a minute, you would get a minute. And I would just as fast as I can, if you really knew me, you would know. And I just think of, and it, it's really fun and it brings out the most abstract things about you, but really just forming those relationships because at that point, they're ready to accept what you teach them. They're ready to care about your passions. They know that you care about theirs, but certainly relationships. And so that was something I got from school number two, and that is is priceless. And I, and I hate that I can't go back and, and prioritize that more in school number one, where I believed that because I love you and care, I'm trying to teach you all of this, but you definitely have to, to marry the two for sure. That's awesome. Um, leaning into, uh, you obviously have a, a wealth of knowledge um, that you have taken from your pre-service and master's, but also being in the field and, and I assume having to provide a lot of support to your fellow colleagues. To get you to where you're at right now, is there a, a, a word of advice or something that you heard that just sticks with you constantly when it goes into a challenging day or a situation or just something that you always remind yourself as this is my motto this is my my uh like my creed this is what i stand for what, what is an advice or item that really helps you um, focus on what you're doing and, and continuing to provide for your students well, in, in sort of a microwave, if we were to zoom in, one that I will never forget, uh, my first principal showed us the footage of Derek Redmond, and he was an Olympic runner, and he had a pretty devastating injury during the race that he was running, and his father burst forth onto the field and literally carried him over that finish line. And so she showed us that, you know, the whole room is in tears. And then she challenged us, I'll never forget this, but for us to find that student every single year that we were going to physically carry to that finish line no matter what. And so that's something Thing that I just take as a really serious charge. Um, and typically it's the student that, you know, perhaps has a reputation before they ever come to your door or a student that has unique needs that might require more from you in terms of planning and time. But I always, you know, I try to do that for all students, but I really try to embody, you know, that one student that no matter what it takes, I will go to the ends of the earth to ensure that they have what they need to be successful. And that visual just sort of helps me, you know, and I could go back, I could go back 10 years and tell you, it was this student this year. It was this student this year. Um, but that's really something that I've taken to heart. And that I think it was a year that changed their life because they did have a reputation or they did have some unique needs. But, you know, when you have that mindset, especially for the student that needs it the most, the whole class sort of joins in and celebrates that. So that's really powerful. I love that. So the school year 
goes in waves. There are those stressful peaks of fall conferences, semester one grades, and now we're in the, the season of standardized tests. So when we are in those moments, what is something that you want all teachers to hear to really power up and, and rise above those moments of stress and struggle? I think just that you matter and that you are seen and that you are valued and that you are cherished. And I think few people play a bigger role in the life of a child than their teacher. And I think, you know, few other careers truly are as much fun as teaching. You know, there are certainly those days that we are stressed and exhausted, but my friends that are in, you know, finance don't really ever have days at work that they're really looking forward to. And so I know the seasons of testing or August or May, you know, they're all, they all bring something different. Um, but I think just that we matter. I think there are very few other jobs that 20 years down the line, your family is sitting around a kitchen table talking about their favorite teacher that they ever had or the teacher who made the biggest impact on them. That's how I started this podcast. My fourth grade teacher changed my life, you know, and so and she wasn't the only one I could count. You know, I would need two hands to, to go through that. And so I think that on those days where you're grading papers till midnight or you're on day three of standardized testing that you matter and that you are seen and that your students really truly appreciate you. A lot of times not in those early years are they able to articulate that, but then 10 years down the road, you're a conversation at the dinner table. 20 years down the road, they're coming back and saying, I didn't have the words to do that when I was in the first grade, but you made a big impact in my life. So I think just sort of, you know, the best is yet to come and, and keep running that race. It's important. That's awesome. So throughout, uh, one of my favorite things to this podcast is I have a, a computer that I keep on adding different tabs to of things that you've been saying that I will have to check after the podcast. Um, the last question is, how would people continue to be in contact with you? You obviously have a ton to share. Um, if they wanted to get in contact with you directly, or if there's a passive way that they can kind of see what's going on in your world, um, are there any uh, easy methods to, to keep in touch? Email is probably going to be the best way. I don't have an educational social media platform, um, but I truly, obviously, am so passionate and love what I do, and I, I love to just help anybody and just share ideas. So um, probably my personal email would be the easiest way to get a hold of me, and that's S Higgs, my last name. So that's S H I G G S zero one at gmail.com. But yeah, I open and invite any ideas, any thoughts, any questions and feedback. I just, obviously I love this. It's my passion and I love to talk about it. Thank you so much. Um, and we will, we'll link to Stephanie's email in our show notes page, which can be found at powereduup.com slash show 16, um, as well as some of those other links that Matt has been collecting in his, his Chrome tabs. Um, so Stephanie, thank you so much. This was this was amazing. I'm, I am not going to be able to sleep in the next couple hours because I am. I caught you very... yawning, Ken. I'm interested to see if that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I am. I'm feeling very empowered. Um, I, I know our audience is going to to feel the same way, and I'm also going to possibly predict that you might be able to connect with Stephanie on our Powered Up forums. She is a she is a member now, and I have a feeling based on the passion we saw tonight that she might be a little bit active on there, sharing some of her ideas and lessons um, for others to comment and to ask questions and to learn from her more because um, I, I know I will be doing that. I feel like we all have a lot we can learn from you and your students and your staff are clearly very lucky to have you as a part of their lives. Um, so thanks again. 
Um, and if you are listening to this or viewing this, if you haven't yet, please subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice or YouTube. And uh, please share this with another educator that you feel can learn from Stephanie and, and learn from all the amazing guests that we've had on our show so far. So uh, we'll keep this going on a weekly basis. But un until then, Matt, why don't you take us on out of here? Thank you so much, Stephanie. Um, and as we power down this episode, uh, you have left us feeling quite powered up. Thank you so much. And uh, everyone have a great week. We'll talk to you next time.